The following content is brought to you by Will Harris, Andy Beach, and Paul Boyer. There is a pandemic, a worldwide epidemic of Asian influenza, which has attacked most of the nations of the world. Laboratory tests have shown that it definitely has reached the United States, attacking both military and civilian personnel. The virus causing this influenza has been isolated and recognized. Experts say that it is probable that an epidemic will occur in this nation sometime between late fall and early winter. For the first time in history, a nation, our own United States, is in the fortunate position of being ahead of an impending epidemic and thus has had the time to organize for an all-out offensive against Asian influenza. There is always the possibility of an increase in virulence of the infection as the epidemic increases. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. We got a hell of a show here for you today. A great interview coming up a little later. We're going to talk about celebrities interacting with presidential campaigns. It's one of my favorite things in the world. We're going to talk about it because an amazing commercial came out, and I need to dissect it with you. We're also going to talk a little bit about the Tara Reid interview That was done with Megyn Kelly. As I'm recording this part of the show, it is not out yet, although we do have some clips. Apparently, it is set to come out at some point today. If that happens before we release it, then obviously we'll talk about the whole thing. If not, we're going to go with what we have. But first, I want to bring some attention to what you just heard. Obviously, we did not do the hyperbole-free coronavirus update. Instead... I brought you a hyperbole-free explanation of the 1957 influenza pandemic. This was a television special put together by Westinghouse Broadcasting, which is now CBS. It included the Surgeon General, whose voice uh, you heard in that clip, along with a few other medical experts. If you want to look up more about this, you can uh, find it under Asian flu, which is obviously something that it probably would not be called in 2020. But for the sake of this argument, I'm just going to call it the 1958 pandemic. The reason why I became fascinated by this is that I had never heard of it. And that's very weird because I literally just got done spending three years of my life researching everything I could find on the 1960 election, much of which happens through 1955 to 60. You know, I mean, really, I guess the the earliest that that we kind of went back was was even Nixon getting uh, uh, picked up by Eisenhower. So that was 52. 
But this was a global pandemic, obviously, repetitive, but it affected America in a very significant way. In fact, death estimates on that pandemic in America has 116,000 people dying. And the confidence that you heard at the beginning is what we thought it was going to be. We thought we had a vaccine. We thought we were able to handle it. Now, there was no social distancing at that point. Indeed, public life went on. Baseball continued to play. But 116,000 people. And trust me when I tell you, nary a political consequence. This did not stick to Dwight Eisenhower. This did not stick to Dick Nixon. This was not used as a pivot point by JFK, which got me thinking. Am I maybe overrating how much this will affect the election? Now, granted, most of the people in America that died from this pandemic died in 1958. Obviously, the election isn't until 1960. That is a lifetime in political time, right? Two years is a lifetime. So maybe things fade. It's different that this is happening in the midst of a political campaign compared to before. But I've been operating under the the idea that we there's no way that we can tell how this is going to play out until we're out on the other side. But maybe by the time that all the dust settles... People just view pandemics like acts of God. People view pandemics like hurricanes. And as much as Katrina certainly was a a black eye for W. Bush, I wonder whether or not that would have affected whether or not he got reelected. Now, maybe if Katrina happens during an election year, it's a different story. But it just made me think about it differently. If, if historically we have not had political consequences for this, would this be different? And there's a, plenty of signs to say that it could be. But this is the first time that I've ever thought maybe it won't. Maybe the average voter that actually decides the elections, when we get outside of the media and we get outside of the partisan talking points and we get outside of the people that read Politico and The Hill and Axios and listen to jerks like me, that the average people, the average people are probably going to vote on things other than a pandemic hit us. One more random non-political bit of information. So as I started thinking back to pandemics and I started looking back at death statistics and how things were and weren't like where our modern world is when it came to it, blah, 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 blah. Obviously, the big pandemic that people have talked a lot about is the uh, Spanish flu of 1917 and 1918. But I had just went and looked up all these baseball references for 1957 and 58, which made me start thinking, wait a minute, 1918, I know that, I know that. I know 1918, baseball, 1918, baseball, 1918, 1918. I know that. You want to know why I know that? Because I happen to be going to a Northeastern school with a bunch of mass holes and a bunch of New York City chuds who all were very, very wrapped up in that 
early aughts rivalry between the Yankees and the Red Sox. And granted, it's always been something uh, virulent, but that might have been the last great moment because it was the moment that the Red Sox finally got over on the Yankees in the playoffs and then went on to win the World Series. But the defining chant for Yankees fans against Red Sox fans, the ultimate scoreboard was 1918. Because that was the last time that the Red Sox won a World Series championship until they did so miraculously in the early aughts. However, as I was talking to fellow baseball fan and occasional guest host of this show, Tom Merritt, he went looking throughout history to see how baseball has interacted with the pandemic and sends me a picture of baseball being played in that 1918 Red Sox season with the batter wearing a mask and masks in the crowd as well. That is insane. When you talk about where we lose things as history evolves, I I always joke about this, that there's so much that we just lose, that, that we just have this assumed knowledge and we try to gather things as best we can but we lose details. We, we, we shape our own narratives and they just leave behind things that are irrelevant or inconvenient. I never knew that that season, that famous season that was chanted by every New York Yankee goon in the bleachers was a season played during a pandemic where the players had masks on. This has all happened before. And it will happen again. Let's talk about what he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he went on TV last mm-hmm. Friday yeah. and said, first of all, it never happened. Period. Mm-hmm. End of report. Mm-hmm. This okay. did not happen. He did say that in his view, accusers should start off with the presumption that they're telling the truth. Do you think he's afforded you that presumption? No. I mean, it's been stunning, actually, how the the... Some of his surrogates with the blue checks, you know, that are his surrogates have been saying really horrible things about me and to me on social media. Um, He hasn't himself, but there is a measure of hypocrisy with the campaign saying it's safe. It's not been safe. You know, all my social media has been hacked. All my personal information has been dragged through. Every person that maybe has a, you know, a gripe against me, an ex-boyfriend or an ex-landlord or whatever it is, has been able to have a platform rather than me. Um, talking about things that have nothing to do with 1993, like even the whole thing with being called a Russian agent, that in particular, um, that incites people. People actually, I got a death threat from that because they thought I was being a traitor to America. And I mean, these are serious things. Like, And his campaign is taking this position that they want all women to be able to speak safely. I have not experienced that. If he's watching this, mm-hmm. what do you want to say to him? I want to say, you and I were there, Joe Biden. Please step forward and be held accountable. You should not be running on character for the President of the United States. You want him to withdraw? I wish he would, but he won't, but I wish he would. That's how I feel emotionally. Do you want an apology? I think it's a little late. 
that is the most explosive clip, at least uh, thus far released, by Megyn Kelly, who flew out to Northern California so she could interview Tara Reid. Uh, this is her first on-camera interview. She was going to do an interview with Fox News Sunday. That fell through, and now here we are. Uh, this also comes with Tara Reid uh, now aligning herself with a lawyer. Uh, he is somebody that has uh, represented Weinstein accusers in the past. So you can expect to see more of Tara Reid. Tara Reid will be out there. She now has people that are, uh, are, are going to make sure she gets in front of cameras and are going to make sure that things are uh, you know, sorted as publicly as possible. The interview comes as a local newspaper to uh, where Tara Reid grew up and I, I presume still lives has pointed out that in 1996, three years after she is said to uh, have been sexually assaulted by Joe Biden, her ex-husband, now ex-husband, at that point estranged husband, contested a restraining order that she had put on him and in that filing, an oppositional filing, so theoretically a filing where where uh, uh, he would not be wanting to do her any favors, he mentions that they first met when she was upset about things that had happened in the Joe Biden office that had forced her to leave. And more specifically, that her exit came by way of an agreement she had with Biden's chief of staff. And so that remains the thread on this sweater to be pulled. But until then, the only other thing that I could see escalating is the Biden campaign. If they want to go full discrediting, they still have that in their in their holster. The Joe Biden won't speak up about Tara Reid, but I know her and I will. That article. I always start with dessert. Is the name Maurice funnier than Martin? I like Maurice. One R. Yeah, don't try too hard. <laughs> We're going on a speech that I'm going to need you to deliver. You try to find a place for the word loquacious. I've got a guilty pleasure, guys. I do. And... It's this phenomenon that happens around a general election. And it might be the only thing that I get in this fractured BS version of what normally is an election. And that is something that normally happens a lot on the Democratic side. Comedians and celebrities doing their best to make their candidate look cool. They sing parody songs. They do sketches. They try their art in an effort to make it matter. Oh, okay, if you just tell a, a fart joke for money, that is X amount of cultural relevant. But if you could use that fart joke to get a few people in Michigan to vote for your candidate, oh, how it would help. You see this a lot, uh, uh, really, in, in the viral video era, in, in the online video era. And this is, in my mind, our first step in that direction. Keegan-Michael Key and Joe Biden 
doing a, uh, a, a shelter at home, your quarantine, call a friend and, you know, uh, make sure that you're still having a good time talking to each other. It gets a little ominous toward the end, though. There's this weird moment, and this was pointed out to me by my, my Night Attack co-host, Brian Brushwood, that considering we were in a very contentious Democratic primary and that it wound up wrapping up really quickly and choices were restricted really fast and it kind of felt like everything was sort of tied up uh, ASAP. There's this moment here at the end. But uh, Joe, I, I got to get going. Where are you going? You're quarantined. You can't go anywhere. We're in quarantine. Yep, 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 you're right. You're right. Where are you going? King and Germany 3. Where are you going? I do. What are you doing? You can't go anywhere. You're quarantined. Hey, Democratic voter, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Vote for... Oh, you're going to vote for Howie Hawkins? Oh, man, you're going to vote for Justin Amash. Definitely not going to vote for Trump. So if you got a problem with Joe Biden, if you want to go somewhere, Keegan-Michael Key, I bet you could probably sit the F down and understand that... Where are you going? You're quarantined. You can't go anywhere. You're not going anywhere. The doors are locked from the outside. (laughs) Hey, gang, a reminder, you can support this show. By heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, we got a new goal. 1,000 people. 1,000 people that agree worldwide on one thing. This show is worth their monetary support. They're putting their money where their mouth is. Guys, I understand what that means right now. This ain't normal times. 14 million plus out of work. According to the jobs report today, good God, that's a lot. So if you can part with any money, trust me, I know how much that support actually means. TakePoliticsSeriously.com, giving you two shows for free, no matter what, each and every week. If you add the $3 level, you get four shows a week, doubling your amount of content. We got levels for uh, people that have a buck. We got levels for people who have a lot more than that. It's up to you. Just know each and every dime is well appreciated at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our guest today is Mindy Romero. She's the director of the California Civic Engagement Project at the Price School of Public Policy at the University of Southern California. You can follow her on Twitter at Mindy S. Romero. Welcome to the show, Mindy. Thanks for having me. Now, the only story that really exists these days is, of course, the pandemic, the coronavirus. And it is becoming increasingly clear as we get further and further into uh, the year that everything that we, you know, if we thought this thing was going to be over during the summer, that's not the case. In fact, we're, we're kind of making contingency plans for the fall and nothing looms larger in politics than this year's elections. So let's just start Mm -hmm. here. What do you think the biggest effect from the the coronavirus is going to be on these November elections? 
Well, let me put it this way. There's the potential that we could see hundreds of thousands, if not millions of voters disenfranchised. There okay. you go. Okay. All right. So let, let, let's go ahead and start there. Now, I'm assuming that you mean disenfranchised as in not able to vote as opposed to just losing an element of the population that now can't vote, right? Oh, yes. Forgive me. I am not um, making any reference to illness or death sure. when it comes to COVID. What I'm talking about is uh, the decision that we're going to be making that our election officials and other leaders are going to be making around how to grant uh, sufficient access to voters to vote um, are going to have huge consequences for how many people actually are able to uh, cast their ballot. Um, COVID is now the realities of COVID is there. It's creating this huge shadow over how election officials are going to be able to actually put on an election in November. We know that no matter what model we look at, it looks like COVID is going to have uh, some sort of effect, potentially um, a very significant um, uh, set of mitigations that we're going to have to be dealing with. And uh, how they work through that, the decisions that they make in terms of how accessible, you know, for instance, if we're talking about vote by mail, how accessible and how um, expanded that use of vote by mail is, you know, basically I'm talking about the different kinds of options that voters have uh, if they can't cast a ballot in the normal way. That's going to have huge implications because it means some voters, if they don't have the options that work for them, they may not participate, but it also could have disproportionately um, could have disproportionate impacts by race, ethnicity, color, income. Um, so we could see the shape of the electorate possibly um, change depending on those types of decisions that are made. Okay, so let's 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 zero in on that. Vote by mail has uh, obviously become something that uh, a, a lot of folks have focused in on as going out to a physical location becomes more and more something that we want to dial back in all walks of life, let alone in a election. How viable is vote by mail? Because this is not something where you can just run off a bunch of copies of Kinko's, right? Yeah. So it's, it's very viable. I mean, um, we're just really talking about what state um, and how viable it is and what capacity that state already has and how familiar voters already are with vote by mail. So there's a wide variation across states in this country. So we have five states that are already essentially all vote by mail. Um, we have another number of states that have really high proportions of vote by mail, like California. Um, and then we have the rest of the nation where we see vote by mail use rates very, very low. And the rules around accessing vote by mail are more restrictive. So people have to have an excuse, for instance, for participating, right? Um, it's not an easy thing, you know, to just get a vote by mail ballot. You have to show why you want a vote by mail gotcha. ballot. Gotcha. Yeah, because um, I, I know for, for California, like for me, I'll get a vote by mail ballot no matter what. And then I tend to like to, because I enjoy the pageantry, <laughs> go vote physically. But I will <laughs> surrender my vote by mail ballot there. Yes. But but I will always have the option in case I was out of town. I can always send that ballot. So, so that's one element, right? So that is... Uh, how, what's the capacity right now? How familiar are voters? How many voters are we talking about that are still voting in person? What percentage? In some states, it's still huge, right? Um, and then also, uh, in terms of the actual capacity to process vote-by-mail ballots, to get them out, to pay for all of those vote-by-mail ballots, uh, vendor contracts to produce those vote-by-mail ballots, and then the capacity that election officials have in some states to actually process all of those ballots. Do they have enough optical scanners? Do they have 
enough staff, especially in the time of COVID? Do they have enough storage facilities afterwards to be able to hold all those which they have to do legally? Um, that varies significantly, and that's a, uh, one of those big factors that election officials have to consider when they're thinking about expanding vote by mail. It's not just, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to send out all these ballots. It's can we? How do we actually get all these ballots out? And then there's the rules around access. So they may switch to vote by mail. They may feel like they have the capacity to do this, and that's, by the way, no easy task. Um, but then how they actually made it really easy and accessible for voters, and does that potentially have a disproportionately kind of negative impact on some voters more than others? So all of those things are kind of in the mix, including how comfortable voters will be. So we don't know exactly what November is going to bring, as you've already said, but we know that there will be, no matter what, voters that will want to vote in person. Either they don't get the, the message that they can vote by mail, or they don't feel comfortable voting by mail, even in the era of COVID. For them, it has to be in person, and they're facing, okay, do I feel comfortable going? Do I trust the mitigation measures? Do I trust the social distancing, whatever is in place? Um, or do I stay home and not be able to exercise my right to vote? Um, so I do want to emphasize, we're talking about accessing vote by mail and expanding it in real ways. Yeah. But it's not a panacea. Um, I highly doubt that all uh, election jurisdictions across the country are going to be able to ramp up. Um, and, and some will not ramp up appropriately. Um, but even in that, there are still going to be voters that need to vote in person, want to vote in person, have language assistance needs, for instance, want to or need to use an accessible voting machine, have a mistake or a problem with their vote by mail ballot, and they have to go in person or didn't get their vote by mail ballot in person or just don't trust the postal service. And we've done a lot of research around this. We know that is, is a factor for some voters and they want to vote in person or need to vote in person. So vote by mail needs to be expanded as a viable real option and an accessible option. But we also have to make sure that we're still providing um, a real robust um, in-person option for voters too. You, you've made it very clear that there's a lot of steps that need to come in legally for vote by mail to be viable, which to me says that there has to be political will to do it. Yes. Uh, how does that vary? Is there political will for this to change, even with this gigantic shakeup that we've seen? Yeah, and that's a really important question. So I'll be really honest. Um, Political will and political maneuvering are both factors in all of this, right? Um, so there's how voters, do they, uh, how jurisdictions can actually ramp up. Can they, do they have the capacity? What do they need? Can they actually get that done? Um, do they have the know-how to, in terms of no, um, opening up access and changing the laws? But you will have in every jurisdiction, right, folks that reject or resist making vote by mail, not every well, I guess every jurisdiction, hopefully not the leadership, but we may see some election leadership um, in states that may resist making vote by mail more accessible. Um, some of that could be because they're just not aware of the challenges, right, for some groups in accessing vote by mail. And some of that could be political maneuvering. Um, we've even seen, you know, our president of the United States uh, just a few weeks ago on a number of a few occasions talk very negatively about vote by mail, saying it was a you know, rampant with fraud. By the way, that's not the case at all. Um, and even charging that there was a political advantage and disadvantage um, when it comes to vote by mail. 
all of that, right, that, that maneuvering and other maneuvering that we've seen um, just obscures from what election officials really need to do to be able to serve their voters best and equitably. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, we're going to see some level of political maneuvering um, in November. And that's why I keep emphasizing the decisions that election officials make around this topic have the potential to disenfranchise, you know, uh, at a state level, hundreds of thousands, at a, at a national level, potentially millions of voters. It's a very real thing, and we have to be understand it and look, track really closely what our election officials are doing, even very well-meaning election officials, making sure that they're fully informed, they have the resources they need, making sure they understand the impact of their decisions. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, let, let's uh, circle back real quick to some of the criticisms of, of vote by mail. Uh, the, the argument is that Democrats do better uh, with it, uh, which you said is, does not hold water. Uh, but are, are there states with highly prevalent vote by mail in which Republicans are in positions of, of leadership? Sure. Utah. Is, Utah. Is okay. Um, are you there? Yeah. Sorry, I lost you yeah. No, no, no. I hear you. Um, and, um, and there's no, this is what's important. Yeah. There's no evidence to say that there is an advantage or disadvantage for one party or another. And there's no evidence to suggest that, current states that where we see high numbers of vote by mail rate that the political leadership in power have benefited from specifically that high vote by mail use rate. So, yeah, you know, they don't hold water. And again, it's noise, it's dangerous noise in this conversation. And I would argue many times it's used to purposely um, cloud the conversation and to uh, provide a, a, an excuse or justification for not um, you know, meeting voters' needs and expanding and making making this whole process more accessible for voters. Where do so you think that fear? Informed. You know, there's a reason why we're we're hearing some of these things that are that are not appropriate, even though we have study after study that tells us otherwise. Where do you think that fear comes from? Um, well, I mean, again, I think um, you know, I think there's two sets. I think there are people that are directly politically maneuvering. They they pull on. Whatever argument, whether it has any, whether it does hold any water or not, they pull on whatever they can, kind of raise that up high, right, to uh, to avoid opening up access to to voting and to vote by mail. And then there's other folks I think that, um, you know, uh, aren't as you know, don't have the research behind them. Um, they are concerned. They're they're very thoughtful about um, their election systems. They're very thoughtful about their voters, and they don't want to do anything that they think actually could advantage one group or another. Right? They trust their current system, and the change can be scary. Period. Yeah. And they think, well, if we make this change, we don't know what this is going to bring for us, or at least in our state, right? Because it's new for our state, and we don't want to make a mistake that could actually end up um, causing an advantage or disadvantage, whether political or otherwise. Um, so that's, you know, that's, I think, part of it. And certainly, you know, some of the research that's out there is not state specific, or most of the research out there is not state specific. We've done a lot of research in California to understand, um, you know, vote by mail use rates and trends. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about your own state and your own responsibilities to your, to those that you serve, um, change has consequences. Yeah. Um, in this case, we're talking about positive change to ensure that there are real options for voters to avoid disenfranchisement, but still that change can be unknown. And then, of course, there's real concerns around cost, how to properly uh, legally execute these changes. Um, could we, you know, 
make a change legally or an executive or ask for an executive order from a governor, for instance, and not realize that there are, um, you know, that that wasn't constructed right and there can be unintended consequences from that. Um, so, I, you know, that's some of the reasons, I guess. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, no, no, no. You know, concerns. Absolutely. Uh, obviously, this is something that does not come along all that often, and the fact that it's happening in the uh, very teeth of an election year gives it added challenges. But in my mind, if we are looking to expand uh, people, uh, their their ability to vote and their ability to vote safely, maybe embracing things that we have not embraced in the past, including online voting, would be something that I think would get some kind of traction do you think that even on a pilot program basis, there is any no. kind of political will for that? <laughs> so I purposely interrupted you just to, just to you know, emphasize um, we can't go down that path. So before COVID, um, we've known that we're not at the place to have a serious conversation about um, implementing any sort of online um, Internet voting. Um, the securities just aren't in place. And post-2016, um, we know that's just been heightened even more. Um, we also don't have the, probably the political will, going back to that, um, to implement something like that. So I think it's just dead in the water. Now, during the time of COVID, I think actually it's more of a reason not to go down that path. Because one of the things that I've been really concerned about is I talk about all these changes that election officials are making. Um, we have to make sure that in this rushed time, in this crisis and emergency, that we don't also implement policies like potentially online voting um, that can do harm, right? That aren't ready, um, not only set a bad precedent for the future, but in the, in the interim can cause um, grave damage to our election system. So the fact that we are rushing um, gives me even more pause to consider something that has to be, has to be right, the technology, the security, the will, um, you know, the thoughtfulness around it has to be there, and we're just, we're just not there. Sure. Um, and what we know, what we know of that is, is, you know, we're not, we're not ready. We don't have the security aspect. Well, yet. let me, let me, let me ask this then: If part of what makes mail more secure than online is the fact that we have a system, it's been tried and true, voters know it, voters trust it, at least on uh, the the level that it does, that comes from repetition. If, if at some point we want to continue to expand our ability to interact with our democracy, wouldn't having some small experimental level of inv uh, of online voting be something prudent, even just looking forward in some statistically irrelevant sample? Mm -hmm. So I think I think in the future, absolutely. So I didn't say no Internet voting or no online voting at all. I think in the future, and certainly the way we would introduce it, if we were going to do it, would be to probably do some sort of pilot, right? Um, uh, sample, if you will, yeah. uh, or jurisdiction. Yeah, but but I, but not now um, is what I'm suggesting. And around vote by mail, don't forget there's lots of security. It's not just that we're familiar with it, um, but the, the there are legal requirements to check that vote by mail, to verify the signature, um, so we know that that that, that ballot actually came from the individual it was supposed to come from, um, to make sure that no other ballot has been cast by that individual, uh, an entire screening process. Uh, that's why, by the way, California, we get, we get teased often about why we take so long to count our ballots and yeah. report our, our election results. It's because we have so many vote-by-mail ballots in the state and because of our security features, so it's a good thing. It takes us a while. Um, so just vote-by-mail actually also is very good for um, just want to emphasize that, yeah. too. And, of course, as it gets expanded across states, we want to make sure that it continues also to be 
very secure, that no shortcuts are taken um, in an attempt to build up capacity or to expand capacity, for instance. And, and, and the problem now, uh, and this I'll wrap up, I swear, no more online voting questions after this, but, but part of the, the, the <laughs> issue is now beyond uh, a familiarity with the security solutions, uh, it is just that, you know, it, it will take money, time and effort to, to put into it, even on an experimental level. Oh, absolutely. Um, there you go. Um, you know, I, I just don't see in this timeline when you think about, um, uh, I'm going to say Iowa caucus, um, in, um, just a few months ago. Sure. Right? Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. 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 They, 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 well, that was, that was a bit of a, I mean, <laughs> I guess, you know, that, that, that would definitely, uh, 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 depend on how much you have faith in your state parties or, uh, state governments in, in these, in this case to, uh, to assume that you would have a better technological solution than the Iowa democratic party did. Well, and maybe that's not that big of a jump, <laughs> but what I'm getting at is this is not the best example either, but there was technology, right? That at least was part of the sale that happened there, um, an app that hadn't been, from my understanding, completely vetted, and that was rushed, and they knew in advance that there were some issues and problems with it and still went forward because they were on this incredibly tight timeline and had a deadline of an election or a caucus. So, um, so anyway, we just have to we have to be careful. And when we're rushed like this around technology, it makes me nervous. I'm not saying that, you know, folks sh shouldn't be exploring things now, um, but it's just not the viable path. It certainly is. not if we're asking the question how to put on safe, secure and robust election that doesn't disenfranchise everybody, online voting is not the answer to that. It might be a small experiment, right, for the future that could potentially lead to something much more significant um, if all goes well with that. But it's not. It's not the answer right now um, and where we should be putting our focus. We have so much work to do across this country um, to get ourselves to a point that we can put on um, an election that, that doesn't disenfranchise voters is what my concern is. Absolutely. So. All right. So uh, let, let's say we want to nationally retrofit America to vote by mail. How much oh, money God. ballpark are we looking at? If, if let's say there was you know, a magic, you know, flute is played and 50 governors are now all on the same page. And so is the federal government. And we're looking to cut a check, uh, a ballpark. What are we looking at? Sure. Well, I'm going to defer actually to um, an organization that I kind of work on this, the Brennan Center. Um, right uh, when we started to go into quarantine, they since then produced a number of reports uh, talking about what is needed around vote by mail nationally. And then also talking about the, the real cost concerns. Um, I believe their most recent number is around $2 billion for everything um, that I would um, uh, steer people over to their website to, to understand better what goes into all of those costs and what the mm -hmm. latest numbers are. I want to speak on their behalf. Um, but things like equipment and optical scanners and printing and ordering of all those additional ballots and staffing, um, the security component of it, um, and the list goes on and on. California is obviously a very populous state, uh, in fact, the most populous state in the union. But some of the states that you had mentioned previously, like Washington and Utah, uh, have a more manageable population. What are headcount wise, kind of the, the, the size of the staffs that it takes to appropriately and securely run uh, a, a vote by mail system? Oh, gosh, that varies so much. I, I couldn't responsibly give you a number. Um it depends, of course, on the overall size of the, the voter population, right? How many are actually voting? That varies by election. 
and then the percentage that are vote by mail voters. How many are new vote by mail voters? How many have a pro- problem with their vote by mail ballot? Gotcha. Maybe it was um, like you surrender it right. Maybe it becomes a provisional ballot. It's a replacement ballot. There's lots of different. The California we have um, new laws that require uh, election officials to cure somebody's signature. So if their signature didn't match up, then normally they would have gotten their vote by mail ballot rejected. Now um, they have the opportunity to fix that signature, whether it's actually missing or um, just incorrect. That takes some time in processing. It's a good thing, but it takes some time in processing by staff to connect with those voters and then make the change if they do, you know, respond back. Um, so it varies so much across across the country. Um, yeah. Sorry to pump that. No, no, no. It's no problem. I mean, I'm just shooting these questions at you so I can understand. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, when it comes to the viability of it, uh, uh, if you were to peer into your crystal ball, uh, how much more adoption do you think we are going to get, uh, you know, by the time that November rolls around when it comes to vote by mail? Well, I think, as I said a little while ago, we're definitely not going to see every state with the capacity, uh, 100% capacity vote by mail. Gotcha. Um, and period. And we certainly aren't talking, by the way, about wanting to only do mail elections. Again, we have to have robust in-person options for those voters that need it. Um, but you hope that you can, in California, it looks like we may be going to um, going the route where we're going to mail everybody in the state, whether they are a high vote by mail county or not. Every voter will get mailed a vote by mail ballot. Um, but then we still expect that there are going to be uh, people that are going to vote in person and take advantage of those in-person voting options. Um, so, you know, it, it varies. A, uh, I don't I think I've lost the track of your question. So forgive me. <laughs> well, I guess here, let me make it uh, a little bit more clear. Are there any states now that are in the process of expanding their vote by mail? Yes, there are a number of states that are doing it or talking about it. Like states like Maryland, um, New Hampshire, Georgia, we're hearing you know, they're going to be expanding the options that they make available in terms of vote by mail. Um, you know, every state has vote by mail available in some form. Again, the question is, um, are they gearing up in terms of um, their actual capacity? Um, are they going to be sending everybody a vote by mail ballot? I don't think we're going to see very many states that will do that other than those that do that now already because of the cost. Um, but are they you know, gearing up for a greater ability to be able to process those ballots? Do they have a voter education um, and outreach component to their work to actually encourage voters to say, hey, you know, vote safely at home, for instance. Um, is that a robust you know, uh, process that's actually going to reach voters that need to hear it the most? Um, and then are they changing the laws? Um, and we are hearing a number of states that are starting to change access. Um, but how much they're really ramping up on the back end, I'm, I'm not so sure. Um, sure. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, I think, again, for some of these states where you've got less than 10% or even the small single digits already when it comes to use for vote by mail, um, the expectation is you're going to see hopefully more voters use vote by mail but it's a huge leap to get into some really significant numbers. Um, so, uh, again, vote by mail is just, it's not a panacea. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and I'm hoping you're not hearing those beeps on my phone. So forgive me. No, 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 we didn't hear anything. Uh, uh okay, all right. Last question. So 
you've mentioned timeline. Timeline is a very, very important thing with implementing anything safely and specifically implementing anything that you were doing for the first time safely. When it comes to vote by mail, are we already too late if if a state really wanted to roll this out in a, in a significant way as I interview you on May 8th? Or uh, uh, could this be rolled out, you know, funded and planned out and, and executed after now? That's a great question. We're getting really close to it almost being too late. So it depends on what aspect we're talking about. So states need to make decisions and local jurisdictions need to make decisions about what they think the capacity is going to be that they need. So how many voters they think that are going to be using uh, vote by mail, right? What is the growth for them um, that they think they're actually going to be able to transition those voters? And then they need to be ordering those ballots now. They need to be ordering those, or very soon, they need to be ordering those equipment um, that they need to be able to process those ballots. And here in California, I know we've heard that um, a number of the vendors that are involved in this um, are asking for their orders now, or at least in the next couple of weeks. And beyond that, it becomes very difficult for the vendors to be able to to produce the ballots, to be able to do the printing, to be able to provide those those pieces of machinery that um, are going to be absolutely necessary. So if the states don't have all of that in place, they they do run the risk of, um, if they see a surge in vote-by-mail, not being able to actually process off of all those vote-by-mail ballots. So that's we're not talking about a set of decisions that are being made in a few months. We're talking about decisions that are being made or need to be made now. Yeah. Um, and then, and then over the next number of months, fine tuning all of that. Right. Um, maybe, maybe be able to acquire, um, some machines that they weren't expecting to be able to acquire. Um, maybe being able to bump up their staffing in ways that they weren't initially expecting because maybe COVID, uh, the, the uh, impact of COVID and people volunteering is, is, is not as bad, right? And there's more people that are willing to help, so they can kind of make those adjustments. Um, maybe their outreach program um, is more or less successful than they were expecting. They're going to have to make tweaks around that. But ultimately, a lot of the, the back-end administrative stuff, those decisions are being made now, and they have to match up to what we're expecting in November, and that's also where you know, the concern is um, in all of this, is that it's not going to match up. Well, I'll tell you what, at least, for, at, least, at least for some jurisdictions, there's a lot to think about and not a lot of time to figure it out before November. But I think we all have a better sense of it. Thanks to our conversation with Mindy Romero. Again, she is the director of the California Civil Engagement Project at the Price School of Public Policy at the University of Southern California. You can go ahead and follow her on Twitter at Mindy S. Romero. Mindy, thank you so much for joining the program. Thanks for having me. And that will wrap it up for us today. I want to thank Mindy uh, for coming on. I want to thank everybody who supports this show at Take Politics Seriously. I want to thank everybody who's on our newsletter. We have had an exceptionally good week on my free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. I'll just say this. I got the best crowd ever for everything, but politically, I don't think it can be touched. The reason to get on the free political newsletter is the fact that our readers, you guys, just have 
they get on the most ridiculous tangents, and then that will all that that'll be all I get emails about. So yeah, we got all the regular. Oh, is this a good idea? Is Trump doing good? Is he doing bad? Blah blah blah. But every once in a while, and we mentioned it on the show last week, we just start talking about ska. The ska talk rolls on on the free political newsletter. And if that intrigues you, I encourage you to take the plunge. Go ahead and get on that free political newsletter because, look, it's free. I also want to thank our Titanic $10 tier. Middle-aged Mike, Chad, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy Craig, Zachy Chan, TroubleFilm.com, Nick, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, D-Laser, Captain Bunzo, Frozen Summers, Milk Leg Scoop, Emily, WolfGlen99, Berkeley Steven, The Gen, N.H. Blumkin, Robert, Eoxy, Andrew, Brad, Daily Tech News Show, Darren, D.L., J. Milius, Jonathan, Lindsay, Miranda, Nick, Nomadic, Olin, and Angela, Richard, and Thor. You want to join their ranks? You head on over to Take Politics Seriously. Dot com. You want to follow me at Justin R. Young on Twitter and Instagram. Till next time, this is your old pal, Jerbs, telling you. Politics has three names, and I know one show that talks about politics. Well, hell, I know another show that talks about politics. And there was one that just got started last week that dares to talk about politics. But there was only one show with the brass buttons to indeed... Talk about all Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>